And if you've got your Bibles, you might want to open them to 1 John chapter 2. They might just kind of fall there these days. But let's do that. Let me pray and we'll get going here. Father, we just ask you to help us as we look at your word. To, you're going to reveal great truths to us. So we pray that we would take them to heart and be able to rest in the glorious things you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So we've discussed here um, many times in 1 John that John's first letter, the occasion of his writing it was the fact that um, an event happened in the churches in Asia Minor that he was responsible for and some folks had left to join a cult. And it was a surprise um, and it left a lot of questions in the minds of the believers that um, we're still faithful that what happened to those people? How could that happen? Some of the folks who left seemed like committed followers of Jesus and then all of a sudden they go off and become Gnostic heretics and, and strange people. So how could they do that? How could they join a weird cult? A cult that denied all the wonderful truths about Christ that we find in the, in the gospel, his incarnation, what he achieved for us on the cross, his resurrection. They denied all those things. How could anyone leave? Well, verse 19 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. So whatever it is that binds believers together, those who left did not possess that thing. Some of them seemed very genuine, but they weren't. They weren't. You know, sometimes real Christians can seem a lot like non-Christians. And sometimes people that aren't Christians can seem pretty much like true Christians. And so for limited mortals like us, it just isn't always easy to tell them apart, you know? Not when everyone, when we're talking about everybody that claims to believe, these are all people that would claim to believe. It's hard for us sometimes to tell who's real and who's not. They, they might all be in the same church together. But the truth is you just can't always know. I certainly can't. I've been surprised several times in my life. In Christian theology, um, ecclesiology, we talk about the visible church and the invisible church. Now that doesn't mean some people disappear, <laughs> the invisible church. Now the visible church is made up of everybody who's here or at a church in a part of a church family. The invisible church is made up of the people that are here in the church family that are born again. Sometimes they're not the same thing because sometimes there are people that come to church for all kinds of reasons that aren't born again. That's why we still preach the gospel to each other. The invisible church that, that John pastored or churches that he was overseeing, the invisible church was smaller than the visible church. There were people in those churches that professed Christ, but they were not in the invisible church. They did not belong to Jesus. They were not born again believers. So some of the people there before the separation happened were not of us. That's the way he puts it. Just that simply. They were not of us. They were not with us. Several times, you know, I've been genuinely surprised over the years that people that I knew personally that were even part of this church sometimes were um, I thought were solid believers. And I might even have concluded if you asked me, I'd say those are godly individuals. And they walked away from, not us, they walked away from the Lord which showed that they were not of us, but they walked away from the Lord. 
So I've been genuinely surprised before by that. So I can understand what they're feeling and why John is writing to them about all of this that went on there. In some cases, I got to talk to those people later and I started asking them about their faith and what happened. And these are people that you would have just said, well, they're strong Christians. And they couldn't even articulate really what it meant to follow Christ at, at that stage. And it was like, so you didn't even get it at all, all, all those years, you know? And um, it's really surprising. They couldn't say what faith in Christ really meant. So it was like they never understood at all, but they sure could have said it when they were here. They could have articulated what we believe and what we say. So how did I miss that, you know? Were there signs all along? You wonder that, I don't know. But um, I do know that it's not always easy to tell. That I know from experience. Jesus actually said it's going to be this way. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares in, in Matthew chapter 13? Matthew 13 is a bunch of parables. And fortunately, Jesus explains some of the parables there. But the, the parable is simply a, a man had a wheat field and he sowed good seed in it. And an enemy snuck in at night and planted all kinds of tares amongst the wheat. And tares are a, a kind of a toxic plant called darnel, which... When it, it's very small stages, when it's starting to sprout, it looks like wheat, but when it grows up, you realize it's not wheat. And so he planted it in there just to mess this guy's life up. And so, um, a, a, so one of the workers there asked the owner of the plantation or the, the field, he says, do you want us then to go in and gather them up? So when he realized that terrors were in there or found out about it, he's, the guy says, boss, you want us to go in there and pull up the terrors? And he said this, the owner says, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now it's a parable, so it's not about plants, <laughs> right? It's a, it, he's using it, something they would all be familiar with to tell a great spiritual truth. So he explains that the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom and the tares represent the sons of the evil one. That's how Jesus defines the wheat and the tares. So it's about people, the redeemed and those who don't know Christ, who belong to Satan. So just as the owner in the parable says he, we're going to wait until the harvest, Jesus explained that idea to his disciples too. He said, the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a pretty powerful parable very eye-opening. We all want to have a pure church, and I think that's what the worker was saying. Well, we can tear all the tares out of there and uh, have a pure crop, you know, a pure church. But, you know, we all want that, but we mainly have to go with what people profess because we can't read people's hearts and know exactly where they are. So some people would say, well, we've got to uproot these tares. We've got to get them out now. We don't want unbelievers representing Christ in our church. And that's certainly true, we don't want that, but we can't always tell because some Christians look kind of like unbelievers and some unbelievers look kind of like believers. And it's just hard. 
And you never want to kick out a struggling child of God in an effort to root out the tares. That's what Jesus is saying. There are sons of the evil one sometimes present, but we've got to wait for his judgment unless they openly manifest themselves in some way, which usually does end up happening. So Jesus wisely tells us that he will sort it all out at the end. But in our text today, 1 John 2.20, it does tell us what the difference is. He tells us what the difference is between the wheat and the tares, between the true and the false. So verse 19, let's go back to that. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. So if they were genuine, he says they would have remained. That's one of the kind of key clues there. They would have remained with us. So the question is, what is it, what is it that held those who remained faithful to Jesus and the gospel? What is it that kept them? That's the big question. Were they more holy? Were they more sincere? Were they more discerning than those other people? Well, John doesn't give them any credit at all. He credits the Lord. The Lord gave them something. Those who remained, those who were genuine, the Lord gave them something. And that's what set, sets them apart from those who left. So now we're going to verse 20. But you... He's writing to those that remained. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. That's an amazing statement. Again, super simple language John uses. He says big things with little words. It's a very short and to the point explanation. So this morning I'm going to look at this phrase, you have an anointing. That's the Lord's gift. So we're going to talk about that. What is this anointing? Now, unfortunately, as with so many things, to talk about what the anointing is, I have to talk about what it isn't. Okay, so pay a little bit of attention here. It gets confusing for some folks. When you understand what it isn't, you, it'll help you grasp what is. That's what I'm doing that. So you know, sometimes Christians, sometimes Christians use words or ideas that have no biblical support whatsoever. I don't know if you never noticed that. But if you turn on Christian television, you can see it every day. So um, words are given meaning that are completely unbiblical. The ideas are completely unbiblical behind what they say about those words. So we really ought, we ought to purge our vocabulary as believers of misused words so that there's no confusion. It can cause harm when you misuse Bible words. And in our day, I don't think there's any word that's more misused. I mean, there's a lot that are probably equally misused, but I don't think there are any that are more misused than the word anointed or anointing in Christian circles today. Um, this particular misuse of anointed is where it shows up, it shows up on TV a lot because it's, it's really tied to the big flashier word of faith, prosperity gospel, Pentecostal type 
preachers. Now, not all Pentecostals. In fact, um, you know, scholarly Pentecostals and, and Bible students reject this, but you don't know about them because they're not on television. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, there's an excellent article. You can get it online. It's called F Five Surprises About the Anointing in the New Testament. And it's written by a Pentecostal scholar. His name's Andrew Gabriel. He's a Pentecostal theology professor at Horizon College and Seminary in Canada. And he does an excellent job of addressing the misuse of that word in his tribe, if you will, his people, his denominations. And he says there are five surprises because the word is misused so much that people have a completely wrong idea about it. So when he says, well, this is what the Bible says, they're going to be surprised. <laughs> so hopefully you're not going to be surprised this morning. But if you are, that's okay. Just accept everything I say as gospel truth. That's your job. <laughs> no, seriously, we're going to look at it biblically, right? Biblically. What, is, what does it mean to be anointed biblically? So how is it misused? Well, first... It's telling you something that you don't need. It's telling you to seek something that you've already got. That's confusing. If I'm a citizen of the United States and you tell me I need to become one, I'm confused. Right? There's all kinds of situations like that. You don't, you don't want to offer someone or promise someone or tell somebody they need to go find something they already have. So what does 1 John 2.20 say? You have an anointing from the Holy One. And there is no hint of any other anointing other than the one that every other Christian has, which is the same anointing. You, you already have it. If you're in Christ, you have more than all the Old Testament saints have. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But here's the second problem. These prosperity kind of preachers or the word of faith preachers that you see on TV a lot, they misuse the concept of anointing for a very specific purpose. And that is to puff themselves up as if they are closer to God than you are, it makes them appear like they're uniquely gifted above you, so they will receive more honors and way more money. If they have a gift that you don't have, and they can persuade you that you need to seek it through them, you're going to send them money, you're going to give them accolades, you're going to regard them as better than you, more important than you, closer to God than you. They have it, you don't have it. That's how that works. And if you get it, then you say you have it, then they'll say, well, I have a double anointing. <laughs> That's what they do. Or I have a special anointing. Jesse Duplantis, who's uh, one of the strangest, truly most blasphemous word of faith teachers, he, he wrote in his, he has a magazine called Voice of the Covenant, and he said this, he says, would you like to know why some people, including ministers, never get out of poverty? You see, I would answer that question and say, maybe they're serving the Lord in some difficult place like Afghanistan. But anyway, he says, uh, it's not because they aren't smart. It's not because they don't have windows of opportunity. It's because they're not anointed. If you're not anointed, poverty will follow you all the days of your life. Now, if you read that, or somebody heard somebody say that, and you knew your Bible, your mind would immediately go to 1 John 2.20 and say, I am anointed. We all have an anointing. And we all know. And you have nothing to offer me. You just want my money. <laughs> nothing could be less biblical than what he's saying. I mean, that is, that is the promise of a huckster. Buy my books, buy my recordings on how you can receive the anointing. It gets even worse than that because these anointing preachers claim um, 
immunity from criticism. And how they do that is there's a, there's appears several times in the Old Testament where it says something along, something along the lines of, touch not the Lord's anointed. That, and they interpret that to mean, if you criticize me, you are committing a great sin. That's really convenient. I'm going to use that, but no, I'm not going to use that. <laughs> because if I try to use it, you will say, well, I'm anointed as you. <laughs> and you'd be right. That's what they do. That's what they say. They have a special anointing. It's a greater work of the Holy Spirit in them than is in you. And you can't criticize me. Benny Hinn said, the anointing cannot come upon us unless we are under right leaders. So that scene, it's, they're tying it to the leader. If you want the anointing, you've got, you can't have it unless you go through this human leader. That sort of sounds like Roman Catholicism in a way. He says, without proper leadership in the spirit, we can't be anointed because the anointing flows from the head down. You say, okay, well, where's that in the Bible? That must be in the Bible. Well, he tells the story of Elijah raising the axe head from that fell down into the water and raises it up. Now, I don't even want to explain how he possibly makes that work out to anointings and heads flowing down up. It's crazy, but that's what he does. He just makes it up out of, out of nothing. But you need to follow these people because they have it and they're the source of it for you. That's what he's saying. And you can't have it unless you follow, follow the leader. In fact, the truly heretical prosperity preachers, and this filters down into churches, sadly, they totally misuse that phrase, do not touch the Lord's anointed. Criticize me, the anointed preacher, you're working against God. And I forgot to tell you, I have a double anointing, so you're in double trouble if you criticize. <laughs> Don't touch the Lord's anointed only referred to kings of Israel who all were anointed with oil. That's what made them kings. And you could think of David. A couple of times David, Saul was trying to murder David, remember? David had the anointing, but Saul also had the anointing. And Saul was still king, so David was going to let God raise him up to the kingship. Two times at least he had clear opportunities to just take Saul out, a guy that was trying to kill him. And he didn't do it because he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. That's what it means. Don't kill the king. That's what do not touch the Lord's anointed means. Does it, well, now we shouldn't kill each other either, but it doesn't have anything to do with criticizing the preacher. You can criticize me, well, do it gently. <laughs> but you can absolutely do that. And you aren't in trouble with God if you criticize the preacher, as long as you're right. <laughs> But anyway, it refers to the kings, not, not anybody else. So let's talk about that a little bit more, about the anointing in the Old Covenant, because it's a little bit different here. But I've got to say that in our era, the New Covenant, under the church age, we all have the anointing. We all have it. When you become a Christian, you have the anointing. So it's exactly the same. You have the same anointing I have. And nobody else has a double anointing or a triple anointing or anything else. They are not special like kings were special. So in the Bible, there is a relationship between the anointing, it's anointing with oil, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That, that's a connection we're going to start to see here. So in the Old Testament, people were anointed for very specific roles or positions of authority. 
And there are, we, all, we often talk about three offices in the Old Testament. There's prophets, priests, and kings. And all of them, there's some indication, were anointed for their, for their task to do. Things could be anointed too, like the tabernacle could be anointed, or the implements in the tabernacle. In fact, the first time a person is anointed with oil in the Old Testament is Aaron, Moses' brother, when he was made the first high priest. So the first high priest, according to God's design for the nation of Israel, and then his sons would receive this anointing. So let me read to you from Leviticus chapter 8, verse 10. It says, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. So when the covenant was made at Mount Sinai and they went through this whole process and built a tabernacle and they instituted the Levitical system of sacrifice and all of that, the priests were anointed so they could handle holy things. There's also evidence, some evidence, that the prophets were anointed with oil as well. And one time we really see that clearly is probably the greatest prophet, the most powerful prophet was Elijah. And you remember Elijah got pretty depressed and upset and um, God was going to replace him with Elisha and he tells Elijah, he says, Elisha you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Anoint with oil. Same idea. So, and as we already discussed, probably more well known than the priests and the prophets were the kings of Israel who were anointed with oil to set them apart. So Saul was the first king anointed with oil by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 10. David was anointed after Saul blew it. And 1 Samuel 16, 13 says this about David. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. There's the, there's the connection between the oil and the Holy Spirit. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So Saul had had the anointing too and the Holy Spirit was upon him to empower him to defeat enemies, to rule the kingdom and all of those kind of things. But because he had been so wicked, the Holy Spirit literally left him. So we see the Holy Spirit coming upon David with the anointing. So the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament did not permanently indwell believers as we all know that he does in the New Testament. So for people in, in Christ, in the church age, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and won't leave us. He seals us. So that's quite different. But he came upon people in the Old Testament for certain tasks or certain offices. Even the guys that built the tabernacle furniture, the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them wisdom to do all of that and design it the way God wanted it and all of those kind of things. So, so but kings especially were the most important, um, you know, political arm of, of the kingdom of God in, in Israel there. So they were the Lord's anointed. But the Holy Spirit might come upon them and he might leave them. In fact, after David's big, big sin with Bathsheba, when he writes his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he asks God not to take the Holy Spirit from him. See, we don't, we don't pray that prayer. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. But in the Old Testament, for a king who was specially anointed by the Spirit to, to rule well, 
he, he could pray that. I mean, that was a real possibility because it happened to Saul, right? So I hope that's sort of clear there. Um, so the anointing is a word that's used for all kinds of people. And even wicked kings were anointed with oil. Jehu, boy, he, what a monster he was. Second Kings chapter 9, he's anointed. Even pagan kings that God uses for his purposes were not anointed with oil, but they were called the anointed. God calls them anointed. Though no ceremony occurred, no oil was poured, these pagan kings might not even have known they were serving God, but they were fulfilling his purposes, so he calls them anointed. Isaiah 45 is one of the most amazing chapters in Isaiah with regard to foreign nations because it's actually written to a foreign king. Did you know that the prophets didn't only prophesy to Israel and Judah, but they prophesied to foreign countries as well? So you might be the king of one of Israel's neighbors or some great empire and a letter would come from a prophet of Israel, a prophecy from the Lord God to you. And that's what Isaiah 45 is. It's kind of amazing. Here's how it begins. So it's written to Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's, he's the Lord of the world at that particular time. Those are the guys that beat the Babylonians and they've established this vast empire. And a message comes from God through the prophet Isaiah to Cyrus. And this is what it says. Verse, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. That's pretty interesting. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go, this is God talking to Cyrus, the king of Persia. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shadow the do shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Can you imagine getting that message? What did he think? What did he think? So anyone in authority in the Old Testament, God calls anointed because they're serving his purposes. But who is the true anointed one, the great anointed one? Well, that's the Messiah. In fact, the word Messiah means the anointed one. So if you say the word Messiah, you're saying anointed one, literally. Every time a Jew talked Messiah, he was talking about the anointed one. Psalm 2, which is a glorious messianic psalm. It's amazing to me that there's 150 psalms and then there's one psalm that's kind of introductory about following the Lord and then Psalm 2 is all about the Messiah right away. So if you're singing the psalms, you get to Psalm 2, you're singing about the Messiah. He's called the anointed one there. And this is what it says. It says, uh, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed one. In that psalm, the Lord calls the anointed my king, and he calls him my son, the Messiah. The last verse of the psalm says, do homage to the son 
that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's how it ends. When Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, he was asked to read scripture. Now, you know, I like to listen to people that can read the Bible well, but I'd really like to hear Jesus read it. I don't know. I don't know what that must have sounded like. But they asked him to do it, so he asked for an Isaiah scroll, and he scrolls and scrolls and scrolls all the way to chapter 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then Jesus closed the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all said, great! No, they actually flipped out. But um, the Messiah has all authority. He is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. He's the anointed one. All three offices are summed up in him. Because a king couldn't offer sacrifices. Saul got in trouble for doing that. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the king of all things. He's the Lord. The Bible says Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, 38. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And that's the sense that the word of faith teachers are trying to take the word anointing, saying that he gave us this power too. But they're misusing that. Anointed is never used in the New Testament New, regarding New Testament believers in that way. Not even the 12 apostles aren't called the anointed. Jesus has the anointing and he is the source of blessings and he is the source of the anointing. So let me talk about the New Testament use a little bit of the word anointed or anointing. It's not used very many times. It's used a lot in the Old Testament because that's where all the pictures are being laid out of Christ. Well, Christ is the anointed. So other than the word Messiah, it's not used very often. As a verb, it's almost always used of actually pouring oil on a person. So, you know, uh, like somebody that's sick. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, the apostles are sent out by Jesus. It says they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. That's what you used to do with sick people, put oil on them. So physical oil, physically applied. It's also used of um, other kinds of acts that do that sort of thing, like pouring something. So you know, remember when Jesus uh, was going to heal the blind man and he took his own spit and some dust and mixed it together? He anointed his eyes with it. That's, that's the word anointed, same, same word there. So there it's used. It's used of the woman that anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, for example. So there was the word anointed. There's only two verses in the entire New Testament where anoint is used as a noun, like a thing, not an action, but a thing. Two times. Guess where they are? They're both in 1 John chapter 2. So there, that's our text. Verse 20 is the first one. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. An anointing, a thing. You've, you've had it. You've got it. Verse 27 of the same chapter. 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. It's not leaving. It remains in you. 
That's it. So what's the lesson there? Every believer has the anointing. Every believer. And we all know, and it will not leave us. No born-again person doesn't have the anointing. We all have it. You have an anointing, and you all know. That's why we stay. Because of the anointing. That's why we don't join a cult and leave Jesus. That's why we don't abandon Christ, because we have the anointing. So what is the anointing? Well, we already talked about the close relationship of the anointing to the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's really what it was. So let me read Acts 10.38, a little bit longer version of it. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So there's the link again, the Holy Spirit and anointing. And John confirms this connection between the Spirit and anointing right here in 1 John. So again, verse John 2.27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things. So the anointing is a teacher. It's not just like a thing you've got, right? It's a, it's a teacher. It's a person. And the most important things are taught us by the anointing. The teacher is the Holy Spirit. And we can see that in John's uh, chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 24. We know by this that he abides in us. How do we know? By the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 5, 6, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So that's how he's using the language of anointing. The, the anointing for us is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who will not leave and who teaches us the things that we need to know. Paul, Paul makes a very similar connection. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us, is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Same idea, just using Paul language and here's John using John language. But both to Paul and to John, every believer is the anointed. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. That's true of all believers, all born-again people. So praise God for the saving, keeping work of the Holy Spirit. So just as Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit, we too are anointed by the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth. And that's why we believe. That's why we stay. That's why we stay with the scriptures, in faith, believing what the Bible teaches about Christ and not leaving him. That's what keeps us. It's not because you're so wonderful. I'm sure you are wonderful, but that's not why. It's the Spirit's power that does that. His presence does that. He awakens us. That's what he does. He awakens us so that when we hear or read in the Bible about Jesus in, in Scripture, the truth about Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished for us, we concur with that. We say yes because of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We love these great truths because of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We stand and won't leave because 
of this great work of the Spirit in us. The Spirit seals us in Christ. So the anointing then is the giving of the Spirit to indwell believers in Jesus and nobody else. Nobody else has that. But all believers have it. Only believers in Jesus are anointed that way. Every believer in Jesus is anointed that way. So the bottom line is, whether it's John or Paul or every New Testament reference to anointing with regard to believers, the bottom line is that we all have it already. When you put your faith in Christ, you have the anointing. And there's no references anywhere to a special anointing, a double anointing, or anything like that. The Bible says nothing about seeking anointing, claiming anointing, double anointings, anointed sermons, anointed music, all of that kind of... In fact, if you came up to me and said, you said, you know, that was an anointed message you gave. I know you're being kind, and you mean that the Lord used it to bless you. I get that, and I'm, I won't say anything. But I might say something like this. I might say... You know, it's the anointing you have that made it special to you. I preach the word, but you have the anointing. And the Holy Spirit took that truth, the scriptures, and blessed you with that. So it's your anointing that made that happen. So we, I, I just think we should try not to use language outside the way the New Testament uses it. Because it usually does end up causing problems and confusion. So try to do that. I, I, most of all, don't let church leaders ever use that language to exalt themselves over you. Don't let them get away with that. That's not right. No pastor, no bishop, no church leader is more anointed than you are. We're all the same. We're all the same in that. In Christ, you have it. So don't let them tell you to go seeking it either because you've got it. It will only confuse you if you go down that path because you have it and they want you to be hungry for something that they can give you so you'll honor them and mainly give them lots of money okay well as we move forward in chapter 2 um, we're going to talk about this anointing in John's context here so I just want to read verse 20 again and add verse 21 okay verse 20 you have the anointing from the Holy One and you all know I have not written to you because you do not know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. So John's readers do know the truth. They've accepted the truth. How? By the anointing. By the spirit within them. But he talks about here a lie. What is the big lie in verse 21? What is that lie that's led to him writing this letter? Well, that's for next week. <laughs> I have to talk about the big lie. Thanks for your patience. Let's pray. Our great God, what a gift you've given us in the anointing. The very presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Through him you keep us. You teach us. Let us value and treasure our anointing. And not let others rob us of our confidence in your gift by claiming to give what we already have. Teach us by the Spirit and make us teachable so we will continue to grow in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. The Holy Spirit <laughs> made that work.